of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, a white coup in a black city in Alabama. Alabamians are paying a private attorney as much as we pay Nick Saban, but he is defending our unconstitutional prisons. Uh, We're interviewing presidential candidate Marianne Williamson about her campaign. All that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week and we might answer it on the next show. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online, particularly at our website, tvlr.fm. You're going to want to bookmark that page because we update that uh, pretty regularly with uh, new reports and articles that we don't have time to cover during the show. So make sure that you uh, check that out, tvlr.fm. We're also anywhere you find anything online, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, YouTube, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor to the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our merch, again, you can go to our website. That's tvlr.fm. If you want to buy merch, you can go to tvlr.fm slash store. If you want to make a donation, you can go to tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report, something that I don't plug a whole lot. Uh, But uh, on Patreon, we do upload a completely ad-free version of the show at the same time that we upload our podcasts. So um, so if you want to listen to the show without the commercials, without the ad breaks, then uh, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, If you're a member of a union, definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. We could not do this without our local union sponsors. Uh, So we are always happy to talk to any union executive board, speak at a general meeting, go to a conference or a convention, uh, anything like that. If there are any questions, always happy to to be available uh, for conversations about that. You can reach out to us directly for more details on that. You can just shoot us a DM on any of our social media pages or send us a note through our website at tvlr.fm slash contact and uh, we'll get that conversation going. 
Absolutely. We really appreciate those sponsors. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed today in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. And as most of you know, we are not media professionals, just a few diehard unionists that believe Alabama and the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front. We could not do it without you. So we want to thank everyone for tuning in, whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener. We really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. There we go. Uh, So first up... uh this story by Lee Hedgepeth that broke last week is just really wild stuff out of New Bern, Alabama, where uh, a small black majority town that has always been governed by the white minority without elections, <laughs> which I don't even know how you do that, uh, but they have over the, uh, you know, For decades, the mayorship and the council has just been handed down from friend to friend among the white minority in the town without any election. And so Patrick Braxton, he decided that he wanted to run for mayor in 2020. And, you know, he went to the uh, current officials of the town at that time and you know inquired about the process for uh you know having an election and uh and for being a candidate in said election and he got no answers from the incumbent uh regime and so he ended up going to uh you know some state level authorities and figuring out how to run and so he did that He filed all the paperwork, he paid all of the fees, and he was able to get on the ballot. And uh, the the, uh, previous mayor, uh, Woody Stokes, having never had to run for an election despite being mayor, didn't file any of the paperwork, didn't pay any of the fees to be on the ballot, and so he wasn't, and so Patrick Braxton was elected mayor of New Bern, Alabama in 2020, a small town of 275 people in the Black Belt in Alabama. And uh, following that, the, <laughs> the, the former government just decided... Nah, we're not going to do that. And uh, they ignored the election. They did not allow him into the mayor's office. They did not allow him to appoint a council since nobody else ran for council. Nobody else ran for council in New Bern. And so the process then under uh, the, you know, the, the way that New Bern is set up is for the mayor to appoint the council. So he appointed the council and the, the incumbents just ignored all of that and then, uh, you know, did these weird maneuvers. And now now they're saying that, no, actually, we had a different election and we won that election. Uh, it's it's really wild stuff that's going on down there in this town uh, because 
In the last official election in New Bern, Alabama, in 2020, uh, for the municipal offices, Patrick Braxton won. He won the election because he was the only person on the ballot. And, uh, uh, and, and he's a black man. And the, the white minority in the town of New Bern just decided we're not going to abide by the results of the election. And so he has been fighting a three-year legal battle, Patrick Braxton has, the rightful mayor of New Bern, Alabama, to uh, basically get the government to come in and, uh, and, and mandate and, and uh, uh, throw down an injunction on the previous government in New Bern, uh, so that he can assume his office. Um, I, I, you know, I really don't know what else to say other than, holy crap, how is this happening in, you know, the year of our Lord 2023? This is really wild stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's the kind of stuff that, that you hear, that you read about that happened, uh, during redemption in the South after reconstruction fell. Um, you know the the after reconstruction ended and the uh, the north pulled out the troops uh, the you know in in states and cities and municipalities and towns across the south uh, the the white minority and in some places the white majority began to uh, once again deprive our black brothers and sisters of the right to vote and hold offices uh, one of the most you know one of the biggest um, events of that 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 happened in Alabama was in Eufaula where uh, dozens of people were murdered by white supremacists in what was it 18 1874 uh, because they were voting and in 1874 uh, that election some if I remember correctly 4,000 black folks voted in and around Eufaula and in the following election only 10 did after the massacre in Eufaula by uh, uh, by the White Citizens League. And so obviously, thankfully, there is no massacre in New Bern, Alabama. There is no violence happening as of yet. Uh, but it is uh, it, it is a, uh, you know, uh, a white minority deciding that they're not going to listen to the will of the people in their town and um, and, and coup the government. But, uh, you know, the Secretary of State has nothing to say about this. Um, neither does the Attorney General or anything like that. There's a lot more to this story and a lot more detail, so I'm just going to point you to Lee's reporting um, on it. I mean, it's a fascinating story and amazing that nobody else in the media in Alabama has picked up on this in the last three years. But uh, go to his website, treadbylee.com, treadbylee.com, and uh, read that story because it's, it's some wild stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Great reporting there by Lee. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, saddened but not surprised that nobody in uh, official capacity really had much comment. I would say that the state rep and the state senator for the area, uh, Singleton and Travis, they both did speak to Lee and they both had, I thought, you know, good comments. But, um, you know, the secretary of state had nothing to say. And that's really wild to me. I mean, like you said, you had basically a town coup occur in this state. Where is the state government here? You know, it's uh, that's that's very disturbing that this would happen. And, you know, we all know small town rural politics can be pretty brutal. But, uh, you know, that takes the cake, uh, an actual coup. 
Yeah. Wild stuff. But uh, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back with presidential candidate Marianne Williamson to talk about her campaign, Labor and Love. We'll be right back. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words. How a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. They don't see us as men and women. 
Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text message at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And let's just jump right into our conversation with Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson is a best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader. She is the founder of a nonprofit organization that began during the AIDS crisis to help people suffering from the disease that has delivered more than 14 million uh, million meals. She is a spiritual counselor too and has been a frequent guest of Oprah. She ran for president in 2020 and is running again in 2024, but most importantly for her resume, she is today's guest on the Valley Labor Report. Marianne, welcome to the program and thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So, you know, you've been making the rounds a lot lately and you've been in the news a lot. I, you know, was going through your website, taking a look at at where you have shown up in the news. And uh, a lot of these interviews are hitting really good and, and similar things. What your platform is, why you're running, do you have a chance, are you a spoiler, things like that. We're going to go over some of those things, uh, but... In thinking about how we would make this as useful as possible for our audience, what I want to do is talk about some of that stuff that I haven't seen um, anyone else ask you and maybe dive a little bit deeper into things of particular concern for our audience. Does that sound good? Awesome. So, uh, and and for folks who aren't familiar with Marianne, um, I recommend checking out the following Max Alvarez's interview with her on the Real News Network. He's a friend of the show, and that interview was really great. Uh, her campaign launch speech really lays out uh, kind of her vision for uh, the presidency and and why she's running. So definitely would recommend checking that out. She was on the Breakfast Club uh, a while ago. That's another good interview that she's done. And her website has a laundry list of priorities in areas like children, crime prevention, criminal justice, the economy, education, health, and labor. Uh, And most of these sections really include uh, pretty significant detail and a lot of specific things that I'm supportive of, uh, some of which we're going to talk about today. But we certainly won't be able to get to all of it. So recommend checking out uh, your website that'll be our homework to the audience um and at least check it out before you go vote in the primary next year so so i want to open our discussion by talking about the state of the country Um, across beliefs and demographics there really seems to be a widespread sense of alienation and despair there seems to be a sense that our society is profoundly sick that our social fabric is breaking down And we can see the trend of increased mental illness, the increases in deaths of despair, and the loneliness reported by so many. 
I heard Max Alvarez in his interview with you talk about a nightmarish deja vu, and I thought that was a great way of putting it. And I'll borrow from some song lyrics from uh, Father John Misty and say that there's a sense that everything is getting worse while staying eerily the same. And again, this seems to cut across beliefs and demographics, though, of course, there's obviously wildly different perspectives about what all this means or what's behind it all. But it does it does seem in my assessment that there appears to be a moral crisis, a spiritual crisis even in this country is we try to survive a society that is engineered around exploitation and oppression, as we try to survive a rigged economy, corrupt politics, a poisoned environment, a collapsing climate. Personally, I figure the only way out is a working class movement rooted in love, justice, and solidarity, and one powerful enough to bring real democratic transformation. So I'm curious to hear your response, Ms. Williamson, and if you could talk about the state of the American people and, you know, the spiritual energy in this country right now, what it means and, and how we move forward. My response is, yes, you're right. Absolutely. A thousand percent. I have dedicated my life to the moral and spiritual dimensions of that crisis in an individual's life, as well as society's. And I came to the point of realization, partly because the society changed during the trajectory of my career, that you cannot separate the moral and the spiritual crisis from the economic crisis and for all the reasons that you said. You know, I'm older, and I think the older you are, you're sort of the keeper of the stories. When I was in my 20s, there was still a sense of hope. You didn't have to have a lot of money to be able to live in an apartment and just sort of have a sense that I could make it too if I work hard. In the 1970s, remember, we had a thriving middle class. And there was a sense, not that you said to yourself, oh, the society sets me up to succeed, but that was the kind of sense you got because you didn't feel thwarted. Remember, the average uh, worker in the 70s could afford a house, could afford a car could afford a yearly vacation, could afford to send their kids to college. So those of us who were in our 20s looked forward to that and assumed that we could have that too. I watched this country change. I watched what trickle-down economics did. I watched what Reagan was doing. I watched the trajectory of what came to be hyper-capitalism, the dog-eat-dog world that it created, how so many people are living in a kind of economic survival, that of course this perverts you psychologically and emotionally. Debt is crippling. crippling. We have one in four Americans who live with medical debt. So I saw it change. And I saw it change in all the ways that you said. And if you continue to try to address the spiritual and the moral crisis that is produced by so much of this atomization, which is produced by so much of, of hypercapitalism, then yes, you are doing good work. However, what I came to understand is that no amount of spiritual counseling or private charity can compensate for mm. a, basic, a basic lack of social justice. So we are exactly where you described, and America is in decline. Now the issue is for us to face that and to lift it back up. But we can't lift it back up unless we're willing to, to face what it is. And I thought you described it quite eloquently. And, and what what you said about you know there's no amount of individual uh, spiritual counseling or 
um, you know, psychologizing that can really bring us out of this as a society. That's something that I resonate with a lot. Uh, my wife is a therapist and, you know, she has to deal with a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the issues that our society creates in children as she goes and, and, you know, uh, uh, talks to uh, children in schools in the area about, you know, about their lives and, and the issues that they have to deal with. But she is, you know, she's one person and her team is only a few people. And there's only so much you can do when after your hour long counseling session, uh, at, you know, no matter how nice you can make them feel in the moment or how prepared you can uh, make them in that moment, they have to go back to a, uh, you know, a, a home that is impoverished or, you know, um, a home with parents who don't have access to, you know, to good, good, good paying union jobs. Right. Who are really on the margins of society. And, and that's something that. Uh, that, that I think that a lot of people uh, and, and, you know, it's interesting. There, there was an Intercept article about you that that uh, they said that you kind of merged Bernie Sanders politics with an early version of Jordan Peterson's self-help stuff. And that's where, you know, people who really get into that Jordan Peterson type stuff, they just totally forget that there's a society around us. Right. We are not. Uh, you know, as much as society wants to atomize us and individualize us, we do live in a society and, and things happen in a certain context and we can't address it if it, we can't address people's individual problems if we don't address the societal problems. Well, I, I don't think this, the comparison to Jordan Peterson is very correct, except maybe that very, very early phase when he was telling people mm -hmm. to you know, get up and not be, a, you know, not be in. Right a slacker and stuff like that. My work is more spiritual and I believe in miracles, but you have to create the conditions for the miraculous to occur. And that relates to a society as much as it relates to an individual. And, you know, I heard somebody say something the other day that I thought was really interesting. He said, I knew we were going down a bad path when I heard Ronald Reagan say, are you better off than you were four years ago? He said, because before then there had been a sense are we better off than we were four years ago? So mm. as long as we fail to reclaim a sense that this is a collective sickness, you know, individuals can make it. Individuals, um, we have gotten to a point, which is better than was true when I was growing up. We've gotten to a point where if you were talented enough, if you were brilliant enough, creative enough, if you have something special going on, no matter who you are, what race, what ethnicity, you probably can make it in America, which is different than when I was growing up. However, the point is you shouldn't have to be any of those things to live a dignified life in the mm -hmm. United States. So even if that person was not a psychologist, even if that person was a minister or a rabbi or a mom or a particular a particular coach and, you know, helping kids because they can be great at sports or that, you know, helping kids that could be great at music or whatever. I think the point we have to face here is, is the rigging of the system in such a way that the vast majority of people do remain locked out of what is basically a prosperity machine of the U.S. economy. 
And that machinery should be available to anyone who works hard enough. And some of the some of the um, people are locked out of that before they're even ten years old. Hmm. And you know, and and, and we're going to talk about some of the specific ways that you want to try to address these societal issues uh, in a bit. But before we get to that, I I'm interested in in some of the way that you you came to that kind of uh, opinion and, and realization about the need to um, to address these societal uh, issues and I, and I wonder if it if it comes from your uh, uh, from your uh, familial background and, and this is something that I've, I've seen on your website and I've never seen anybody talk to you about it which is kind of bizarre to me because it, it's fascinating to me uh, you say that your father was a labor organizer with the CIO that he was part of the UAW's campaign to organize Ford plants in 1937 your grandfather worked on Rock Island Railroad Railroad and took your father to hear Eugene Debs speak. Uh, your brother worked for Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, and you know uh, you say that that played an, an important role in, in kind of shaping how you view the world. Can you talk to us about what it was like growing up in an environment like that, and, and how those people affected uh, uh, affected you? Well, I've actually talked a lot about my father. Um, I grew up in a very typical liberal Jewish democratic home, actually. Um, but America was different in those days. I'll give you an example. My mother's family was very different politically than my than my father was. So there would be a family breakfast right in my grandmother's house. And my uncles would say to us things like, don't listen to your father. You'll never make any money. And then my father would say, don't listen to your uncle's kids. They will not survive the revolution. And then my mother would come in and say, okay, who wants roast beef? Who wants whitefish? That was America. We had these conversations. We weren't like that. We were, this was America. These were the conversations on the table. And um, I think about that now and I think, well, how different America is. As a matter of fact, I have felt and I've heard other people say the same I'm glad my parents didn't live to see what has happened to this country because it would have broken their hearts. And that's how I feel about both my parents. So yeah, when I was growing up, I remember my parents saying, if you ever cross a picket line, don't even think about coming home. But I think the most important anecdote is, I don't remember if I was in my 20s or my 30s and I was some, with some girlfriend and you know some friend in the car. And I remember we were going somewhere and I saw a picket line and I said to her, oh, we can't go in, there's a there's a picket line. And she said, oh no, it's okay. You just kind of go around the line. And I looked at her and she said it with such innocence. I realized she was raised in a very different home, but it wasn't just that she was raised in a different home. She was raised at a different time because when I was growing up and I grew up in Texas and there were a lot of conservatives, obviously, even then, even though it was more of a democratic state, it was just understood that you didn't cross a picket line. Mm -hmm. And I saw what happened. That goes back to what I said before. I saw this country change. I saw the demonization of labor that took place as part of the systematic rigging of our economy. Uh, I saw, I mean, the 80s was, a, was an amazing time of fundamental change and we have to make it, turn it back, that's all. We've had an aberrational chapter of American history. And I think that, what I want to do as a candidate, but also what I want to do as president 
is to help this country look in the mirror. You know, every, every generation of people individuates, every individual does. And what do you do when you grow up? You know, you're talking about your wife being a therapist. You look at your parents, you look at your family system and you say, um, okay, what did my parents do that was right? What do I want to extend and pass that on to my kids and hopefully even do better? And you look at other things and you say, that stops here. I'm breaking the chain with that one. And that's what this generation of Americans needs to do. And when I say generation, I mean all of us who are adults, whether you're 18 or 80. We need to recognize that this last really 50 years of, of trickle-down economics, neoliberalism, corporatism, hypercapitalism, it doesn't really matter what we call it. But for us to realize that a $50 trillion transfer of wealth, this focus on money for the stockholder as opposed to and at the expense of all other stakeholders, particularly the workers, has led to a devastating chapter that we are now in. And it is tanking us. It is literally tanking us. It's You cannot overestimate the role that economic despair plays in this mental health crisis. No, the mental health crisis is not just about what's going on in the brain. A lot of what's going on in the brain is because of what's going on in the world. That includes the state of our food. It includes the state of our water. includes the state of our earth. includes the state of our climate. includes our foreign policy. includes the fact that people can't afford an education or to send their kids. The fact that people can't afford their medicine. They, 18 million people who can't even afford to fulfill their prescriptions, people rationing their insulin, putting, putting mm. uh, uh, GoFundMe pages up on the internet so that they can afford to pay for operations that some greedy insurance company has said that they or their loved ones cannot have. This is not going to change unless we change it. We cannot look at this as simply fighting this issue here or fish, this issue there. We're always playing whack-a-mole. It's, it's an all systems breakdown. I agree with you that we need a political revolution. And I believe, I, I agree with you that labor is, is crown jewel, but it's, it's a, it, it goes across all sectors of society and all elements. And um, it, it does have to do with our realizing that it is now baked into the cake. The status quo will not disrupt itself. It's not a surprise to me that whether it's me or Bobby Kennedy or Cornell West, what is the one thing we all have in common? We're not part of that system. Hmm. That system's not putting up a candidate who wants to really break the chain that binds us and that binds the majority of Americans economically. They're not gonna do it. And everybody who's working within that system, even the most progressive voices are locked in. They're not gonna say it. They're not gonna run for president saying it. Why? Their committee assignment might be taken away from them. Their chances for 28 will be diminished. It's got to be somebody coming in and saying, uh-uh, we're going we're gonna to change this thing. There needs to be an intervention, just like you intervene with a drug addict. Uh, there has to be an intervention. The status quo will not disrupt itself. We, the people, must disrupt the system. You cannot do that. You cannot do that without a revitalized labor movement, which is starting to happen, which is the same thing that happened in the first Gilded Age. And mm. we're now in the second Gilded Age. And it, what you're seeing is the reiteration of this. It's amazing. You were talking about Max Alvarez, Max Alvarez, Christian Smalls, um, the, the, you know, what's happening, the, the baristas, what's happening at Amazon, what's happening with the writer's strike in Los Angeles and New York. Um, 
people are getting it. This is all part of, a, of an awakening that's going on. Now people need to be willing to make the transition to realize it has to be an inside and an outside strategy. I'm not saying that electing a president or anyone else who gets it is going to be enough, but neither is it enough to just work on the outside. We need an inside outside strategy. Those of us running for office need to support the movements but the movements, I think, need to support the candidates who, who, if given the levers of power, would open the door and let them in. Mm. And you know, the I also think that that a revitalized labor movement is key to really any sort of of large scale changes in our society, and and that's how we've seen them come about in the past. And you know, as individuals, there there is only so much we can do. You know, like not crossing a picket line. That's really kind of the bare minimum that that you talked about doing. But uh, you know, as a president, like you said, there are ways that you can bring labor into the, you know, in the door, so to speak, and, and support uh, and support workers from that office. And, you know, when it comes to labor, Biden has said that he's the most pro-union president of our lifetimes. And and certainly I think some leadership in our unions are going to say that. And, and I think to the extent that it is true, it's not so much that he's so great about labor. It's that the bar is just that low. Um, you know, he is willing to say union is a positive word. That's great. Uh, we've been pretty impressed here on this show with Jennifer Abruzzo, uh, gen generally speaking, at the NLRB. Uh, but aside from that, there has really been a lack of action. And being in Alabama, I can't help but think in the context of, of a president supporting labor of the coal miner strike in Brookwood that just ended after almost two years uh, where they were fighting against, you know, international private equity companies that owned Warrior Met Coal. And the lack of action from the administration was really appalling to us. There were no statements made. The I saw in Birmingham, the Department of Labor Secretary Marty Walsh come to tout the infrastructure bill and be asked to his face for support from miners, and nothing came of that. Nothing came of that at all. He didn't even take the time to go a few steps down the road and be on the picket line with them. And, you know, we expect that from... Republicans here in Alabama, even though it's it's gross how they throw up coal miners in their ads and, and don't do anything for them when, you know, they go up against BlackRock. But, uh, you know, we we would like to be able to expect more from a Democratic administration. And so how would a how would a Williamson administration have responded to a strike like that? One that ended up lasting, like I said, nearly two years before the union called the strike off without a contract. There was a time when the Democratic Party did stand in unequivocal advocacy for the working people of the United States. Now there's a new playbook. Uh, I think Obama perfected it, and Biden is very definitely in the same playbook. Say the right things. Say mm -hmm. the right things. Say you really support labor, and then maybe they, they will be distracted, and they won't recognize what you're actually doing. Do just enough. Do just enough. Raise the minimum wage for the federal workers. But then when you try to put it in the whole bill and the parliamentarian says, no, oh, that's great, that's convenient. So we won't, we can just stop there. Um, the railroad workers, the rail, who only wanted sick pay, 
uh, Marty Walsh, what you just said. At what point are we going to end our codependent relationship with the democratic elite and realize what's happened here? What they want to do is they want to do what they can on the periphery, but they won't go so far as to do anything that challenges the fundamental underlying corporate forces that make the continuation of all the suffering inevitable. So that's where I believe we need to get. Stop thinking that the democratic elite is going to do anything for you on that level. What I would do as president is I would cancel every union busting company that the U.S. got uh, a contract with every union busting company day one. I, I, there are, I, I would make sure that not only every company, but every every company that has a contract with a company that has a contract with the U.S. government has to give $15 an hour to its workers. And let's not forget, $15 an hour is not enough. In mm -hmm. many cities in this country, it takes $24, $25 an hour to really be a living wage. And Franklin Roosevelt said that a company that does not pay its workers a living wage is a company that does not deserve to exist. Half the workers in this in this country cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment. One-third of American workers live on less than $15 an hour and, and can't, can't afford a place to live. There, we, we have over 3 million people getting eviction notices every year. Many of these people are working people. Many of our homeless, people living in their cars. So the, the message here is, we are way past time when incremental changes should be taken as acceptable. And like you said, the bar is so low. We're begging. We, we are saying to the Democratic elite, thank you for the cookie, because the Republicans only give you crumbs. But the Repu these Democratic elite establishment are giving you cookies. You can't live on a cookie either. You live on mm. nourishing food. And nourishing food is a decent living wage for a, for a, for a dignified job. And that's why I have you, an economic bill of rights. And you mentioned the the rail workers uh, just a moment ago, and and that is something uh, you know perhaps with a little bit more national res uh, resonance that uh, has really really disappointed a lot of union members, even people that are disposed to uh, to support Biden. And and we've seen in our comments section rail workers telling us that they're going to be voting for Trump in 2024 because of uh, the uh, you know the strike breaking that. Uh, that that Joe Biden engaged in with the support of Democrats in the Congress. And so, you know, we would disagree with that electoral strategy about voting for Trump. But, you know, that's Biden's fault, right? It's it, Because it's how do you uh, – he has not even given us – Anything to work with, if I'm talking to a rail worker, and, and let's say we live in a world where Jacob wants to try to convince them to vote for Biden in a general election, he just hasn't given me anything to work with, particularly for rail workers. And so, you know, can we assume that, that a Williamson administration would not engage in, in, in that kind of behavior during negotiations like that? I'm running against him. I'm his opponent. That's the whole point. And if you don't, I firmly believe there are a lot of people like those who have told you to hell with us. I'm voting for, mm -hmm. for Trump. What I'm saying to you is I don't even think I don't even well, I don't want to say that the president wouldn't win again because I don't want to sort of put that in the air, you know, mm -hmm. but then vote for someone different. 
You know, we have this codependent relationship with continuing to talk about what the Democrats are offering. What they're offering is not enough. It has not been enough for us, and it is not it is not enough to win in 2024. Let's talk about the options. So when you say, what would the uh, uh, Democratic uh, uh, Williamson administration do? Yes, we would make sure that we pass the PRO Act. Yes, we would cancel the uh, uh, the the. Um, uh, the contracts with the union busting companies. Yes, you know, Franklin Roosevelt said, it has become obvious to me, he said clear, uh, that we must become fairly radical for a generation. Now, mm -hmm. when I say radical, I mean radically American. But the Democratic Party is trying to have it both ways. And I don't believe the Democratic Party should be trying to have it both ways. The Democratic Party today is what, not the Democratic Party, but the Democratic elite, establishment elites in the Democratic Party today are what the Republicans were when I was growing up. Hmm. I, you know, it, it, it definitely, um, you know, I've seen flyers uh, from young Republican committees talking about, go, you know, the importance of going to your union meeting. And, and that's just something that you would never see here. And in fact, when uh, Tupperville was running against Doug Jones, he took out an, an ad in a local newspaper here saying that uh, Tupperville would stand up to big labor. Um, as if this is something that that you know people are concerned about here in you know rural <laughs> North Alabama is having a senator that <laughs> right yeah I would love to have a big labor in this country that really that actually uh, pulls the strings and <laughs> when when Biden won in twenty twenty you know who wanted to be his secretary of labor don't you yeah yes <laughs> and he chose Marty Walsh that says everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, something that we can never uh, say often enough. Howard Schultz was uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, reported pick to be secretary of labor. And we see what what Howard Schultz is doing with with his workers right now. And, and one more question on, on labor uh, th that I'm interested in your take on is that over the past several decades that, that you've been talking about this, the rise of, of whatever we want to call it, hypercapitalism, hyper neoliberalism, we've seen uh, law enforcement organizations at the federal and state levels be chronically underfunded. And I'm not talking about the police, the people that uh, are going to pull you over uh, when you're going down the street or, uh, you know, harass you if they don't like the way that you look. I'm talking about the agencies that enforce laws that benefit workers at the expense of bosses, organizations like the Department of Labor, like the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, like the Mine Safety and Health Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Labor Relations Board. Every one of these organizations have devastating numbers that they can reel off to you. And the summary of all of it is that they have more work than they ever have in the history of their organization, and they have less resources than they ever have in the history of their organization. So how would you make it a priority for Congress to fully fund these organizations? President presents her budget. And when the, uh, listen, no matter who the president is, you hope for members of the House who support your agenda. You hope for a Senate that supports your agenda. Obviously, people need to not only, if 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 the agenda of what I am suggesting is to someone's liking, then you not only have to support my candidacy, but support on a primary level 
more congressional and senatorial candidates as well. Remember, the crushing of progressive candidates occurs not only on a on a presidential uh, level, but it, uh, definitely on a congressional level as well. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the goal here ultimately is to get enough people in Congress who will actually you know, actually support the kind of agenda in which there will be more funding for the NLRB, there will be more funding for the EPA, there will be more funding for the FDA, there will be more funding for these things that actually support people. Underfunding these agencies, capturing these agencies by corporate forces is the agenda of the hypercapitalist neoliberal forces. So the, having a president who gets that and will say that and will lay it down and will tell the American people what's really going on is important, but it's not the only thing. So yes, get a pre, getting a president in there who will say it like it is and say, we need this money and will actually expose when that money is not giving. We'll say it in something like a, like a state of the union, say, well, you know, what we really need is more money for the NLRB. What we really need mm -hmm. is more money for OSHA. What we really need is more money for the labor department. But my fellow Americans, we couldn't get it from this Congress. Why? Because they're not working for your health, safety, and well-being so much as they're working for their corporate donors. We need a president who would say that in the State of the Union and then see what happens. Mm. Um, I appreciate your time here, and we'll wrap up with uh, what I see is as the two big elephants in, in the room regarding your candidacy. And, you know, for other policy specifics, like I said, you've been on uh, several programs, uh, given, you know, speeches, and you have a really detailed website. I would recommend folks uh, check that out. Uh, and, and so, to uh, but to wrap up here, I want to uh, give you some time to address those two, and and the first one is is I think your past history is something of of a spiritual advisor or a self help guru, which many people actually like. We have even had some listeners uh, come to us and say that the reason they're interested in your campaign is from your appearances on Oprah and reading your books and how much you have helped them in the past, but others have the opposite reaction. They're kind of turned off by it. And we've had other folks just on the opposite end of the spectrum reach out and say that uh, questioning your candidacy because of those very things. And I'll just read you one comment that we got uh, because I think it's representative and I, and I think it'll be helpful for you to be able to address that directly. And, and this person told us, Initially, we really liked her because uh, one of the videos she did was a really good one about America's mental health crisis. And she said a lot of really good things in it that I'm not used to hearing politicians say. But ultimately, we got a little weirded out by her because uh, we learned that she's apparently into uh, magical healing crystals. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that's not the case, but that that's an opinion that's out there and other really bizarre and ethically questionable forms of alternative medicine. How would you talk to a person that has come by one way or another to that opinion of you? It's a shame that people, so where did they get that information? I mean, hello. So I have so many, I have 14 books that are out there. There are so many uh, videos of my lectures, et cetera. You'll never find in any of those books any talk about healing crystals. You'll never find in any of my uh, talks that you'll see on the video of me using healing crystals or magical thinking to heal people. Why do I know that? Because it doesn't exist. Mm. Now, let's be real about the kinds of things that you and I have been talking about on this program today. 
we're very aware, and I would think that the person who wrote you that note would be aware that there is tremendous institutional resistance to conversations like you and I are having actually being translated into effective political power. So they mm. say it's a form of character assassination. It's a form of creating whatever narrative would throw fairy dust in people's eyes. So mm. ask me about something I've said, because I've never said anything about healing crystals. And I've never said anything about magical thinking. Um, so how do I, it, it's kind of like one of those, when was the last time you beat your wife? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I defend myself for something that didn't happen. And I know that those narratives have been created and I, you know, those narratives are created and, and it's just ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous because people hear it and think it's true. It, I think there are a lot of people who would like to think that they are not vulnerable to disinformation. Sure are when it comes to me. But, you know, like they say, do your own research, actually read my books, pick up mm. any of my books and see if I say anything like that. Mm. Get any of and, my texts, any of my videos. There's so many of them out there. See if I say anything like that, and you mm. won't find. And I think that uh, I think that one good place actually to kind of see somebody stumbling over trying to accuse you of that is your interview with Sean Hannity, because he read a quote from one of your books or speeches or something that was said in different words, but is actually very. Uh, theologically Christian about not feeling at home in this world. And I remember growing up in the church and seeing a, singing a hymn to that effect about, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not home here and, and, you know, all this stuff. And, and you said, you know, I don't know. I thought that's something that a lot of Christians would actually agree with. And, and he kind of stumbled over himself and was like, oh yeah, you know, now that I think about it, uh, you, you know, you're right, actually, that is something I agree with. So never mind. Um, and so, <laughs> Something I wanted to point out was that there that is the irony. If you mm. read my books, my I, I speak about the religious and spiritual themes at the heart of all the great religious systems, but they're all pretty traditional. Mm. I mean, I, my, my spiritual beliefs are pretty traditional. Um, we must love one another, be merciful, forgive, be compassionate, walk humbly. That's pretty traditional stuff. Hmm. I I would I would tend to agree. And so the last thing that that will let you um uh let you answer and then then we'll we'll let you go. We appreciate your time is and and that's the other elephant in the room that I think is more important to me and and um even for folks who like you it is, you know, the long shot nature of your campaign. Um being in a, being a union member uh you know, union endorsements are important to me, and many unions have actually already endorsed Biden, which is something that that we, you know, had a segment about on our show saying that that was a bad idea. Uh, and the, the ones that haven't aren't really likely to endorse anybody else in the primary. And so what are you doing to court union endorsements or at least encourage them to kind of stay out of the race? Have you received any union endorsements yet? Um, and, and why should union members and other working folks donate time and money, their limited resources to your campaign? You know, wh what is the theory to win, I guess, or at least affect change? You know, is there one policy in particular that that maybe you're hoping to to get Biden to adopt because of this campaign? Um you know, so I, yeah, that, I'm interested in, in your response to that. Biden will not adopt 
more pro-labor policies than he has now. What I would hope is that people would do their civic responsibility, look at the agenda of the president, look at my agenda, clearly on my website, marianne2024.com, as it pertains to labor and everything else, an economic bill of rights and so forth, look at the agenda of anyone else who's running, and then make a a mind and heart filled uh, decision. Um, The person who will win is the person who is supported. I mean, Donald Trump supposedly had no chance of winning back in, you know, 2016. The, the, the issue is we have been trained in this country to limit our political imaginations. Ah, she can't win. Of course they want mm. you to think that. That's kind of like, oh, she uses healing crystals. I'll win if I get the votes. I'll get the votes if I'm supported. So I've heard people say that. I heard some environmental activists said something similar. Somebody, a friend of mine who was big in the environmental movement said, how can you support Biden after he proved the Willow Project? How can you uh, uh, support Biden after he gave more drilling permits than even Trump did? And so this person said, well, what else have we got? I felt so erased. I felt so invisible. Mm. I've said I would cancel the Willow Project on day one. It's a mind thing that's been done to all of us. And uh, part of claiming our power is using it. This is a primary, by the way. This is a primary. So if you vote for a person, if you want to, if if you think that Biden is going to ultimately win anyway, which, you know, if you want to look at reasonable predictive factors, that would be, re- you know, understandable. Vote for someone in the primary who, should they get enough votes, even if they do not defeat him, by standing for the policies you believe in will have more influence. So when you say to me, how do Mm. I expect to agitate? How do I expect to influence the president? My question goes back to the voter. How do you expect to do it? I'm doing it by running. By you voting for me, you are upping the conversation that the president would then have to look at and go, wow, a lot of people want that agenda. Mm. I think that's reasonable. And, you know, we've some of the we've had internationals of of local unions who, you know, advertise and sponsor the show who have endorsed Biden. And and so, you know, I I can imagine that there there might be some consternation with this interview, uh, perhaps. But I I hope people will listen to it with an open mind. And uh, and and, you know, like you said, do your civic responsibility. I I think that it is important for people to actually know who and what they're voting for and and what the ramifications of that is going to be. So um, so uh, maybe. Marianne Williamson, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to say before uh, we wrap up here? No, I think it's great. I think what you're doing is great. I, I I agree with everything you know that you guys were saying at the very beginning of this conversation. Um, America's in trouble, and it's like a ship that's listing to the side. We need universal health care. We need tuition-free college and tech schools. We need free child care. We need paid family leave. We need a guaranteed living wage. We need a guaranteed sick pay. We need uh, an economic bill of rights, but we're not going to have these things until and unless we support candidates who stand for them and stand for them passionately and vocally. And um, if all of us work together, we can have that, but we have to make it happen. Marianne Williamson, uh, candidate for the presidential nomination in the Democratic Party. Appreciate your time, and uh, uh, we'll see you later. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys.
All right, folks, uh, we appreciate you listening, and um, there has been a lot of conversation in the chat, and hope you understand that we are not a that that we weren't able to get to all that. We had some questions that we felt were uh, important that we wanted to uh, uh, to ask her. Appreciate your uh, yeah. We patience. had a whole lot of questions. Believe yeah. me, we had we had plenty of questions. Uh, just you know, we we could have done. Uh, many more. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot we didn't talk about. For example, foreign policy is is an issue that uh, I really like to talk about. We didn't really get into, but uh, you know, maybe another time and maybe uh, down the road. But yeah, I really appreciate everyone who's been tuning in this morning. Uh, appreciate your time. And like Jacob said, I hope everyone just listens with an open mind. And that's why we talk to candidates on this show. We've talked to a, a diverse cast of characters yeah. on this show everyone from republicans to communists and everything in between so uh we try to have a diverse crew of folks that, that come and speak to us so that we can just hear what folks have to say and and try to have dialogue that's helpful and relevant to working people in the south yeah uh i will um during the break uh, i'll be uh going through the chat and seeing if there is anything in particular that that i think uh would be worth us responding to once we get sure. into overtime yeah um i think that that would um that may be helpful so if you are uh you know if you're particularly interested in in seeing us address your question uh then then go ahead and drop it in the chat now with uh you know maybe do caps lock and and uh, all caps and say question <laughs> and then have your question and, and we'll yeah yeah we might can address it in overtime which Happy is the to. second half of our program where we are off the radio and free from the shackles of the FCC censors so if you want to uh, check out the second half of our show you can find us on YouTube and Facebook where we're going to be continuing for another hour and a half after we wrap up on the radio but and we have two great interviews coming up in overtime also two guests yes. in, in overtime this time so it's going to be a great one yeah going to be a good one uh, we do have 30 more minutes on the radio so we are going to take a break and be right back and talk about um a real freak attorney who is making as much as nick saban to defend our unconstitutional prisons uh so that's a story that has really got my knickers in a twist this week uh so we're going to talk about that when we come back stay tuned you're listening to the valley labor report there's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers but that's not the case with ibw558 we have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior'd Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior'd Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior'd Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior'd Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior'd Law. The name with proven results. Do you work in an auto manufacturing plant? Are you tired of taking pride in your work without getting the respect you deserve? Consider joining the fight to unionize. Auto workers across the industry are coming together because with a union, we can negotiate for the pay, benefits, and security that we deserve and can help sustain our families. In union plants, workers bargain for long-term wage increases, competitive bonuses, and more affordable benefits. You can join the growing wave of organizing today. Find out more and contact us at Uniting Auto Workers on Facebook or contact UAW Region 8 in Lebanon, Tennessee by going to www.uawregion8.net. 
That's www.uawregion, the number eight, dot N-E-T. A better future is ours. Super chat from Bigelameo. That's great. Uh, love that. And um, anything that we get goes to helping continue the show and uh, working on um, trying to bring more attention to uh, more attention to working people's struggles here in Alabama. We uh, have broken a few union-related stories here in the local area and. Uh, the more that we, uh, the more money that we have, the better able we will be to do that. Um, so, absolutely. I mean, know. and it costs money to be on the radio, and uh, we would love to be expanding our radio footprint. Uh, I think that would be cool if we could get on more FM, AM, AM stations. And so, uh, whatever folks do contribute, it really it goes a long way. We couldn't do it without the individual contributions. I mean. You all hear the ads, you hear that we do have sponsors who run advertisements on the show, which, you know, we couldn't do it without them either. Uh, so really, it's it's a collection of, of those revenue sources that help fund the show and help us be on the air. And we think it's important to be on the air on FM radio, including in different, you know, we're on pretty diverse stations, right? We're on a very conservative talk news station. We're one of, one of if not the only show probably on VNN that is uh, from the left, I would I would guess. I don't know, Jacob, you're more familiar with, with local talk radio than I am, but I'm not sure that they have any more. Any, uh, on WVNN? Right. I'm not oh, sure yeah, no, that they absolutely. have anything quite like us on WVNN. No, and then, and then we and air. I mean, even across the state, there's not, there, you know, I think there may be one progressive radio show in Birmingham maybe I remember it being on years ago but I don't know if if it's on if it's still on um yeah so. yeah so we you know we try to bring something different right and I hear from people who don't necessarily love our politics but who appreciate what we're doing because it is something different uh and so yeah you know. and and you know and uh, look the uh, the the freaks with billions of dollars wouldn't be funding this kind of stuff if it didn't have some effect. Like, of course, they've got more money than they know what to do with, and so there's a lot of money wasted. I was just talking to Adam this morning about how uh, uh, Coke-funded 1819 News is spending $1,000 a month on a gold check mark on Twitter. I mean, what weirdos. Right. right. <laughs> but, I so, mean, I would love to have a thousand dollars a month extra just to, <laughs> to pay some writers to get some good stories right out there, yeah right? uh, cool. uh here's a here's a commitment that we will make if you if we ever get a donor that gives us a thousand dollars a month uh we will not spend it on a gold check mark on twitter.com um so that's, that's very true that's our commitment to you we will spend it doing actual things uh but you know i mean like it wouldn't uh, you know so they'll waste money on stuff but 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 radio 
even as as much as its influence is declining, it still has a lot of influence, and there are still there is still uh, influence to be had there. I mean, the Huntsville radio market is enough to prop up three full time conservative radio hosts, right? And so you know. The local capitalists and, and the people who fund these type of folks, they don't do it for no reason, right? There's a, there's a reason that they do that, and so it's effective. So um, so we, we – and, and that's why we want to be on the radio and why we're willing to spend a little bit of money to do that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think being on uh, diverse stations, right? We're yes. on we're on conservative stations, stations, black stations, community stations. So. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. Uh, $2 super chat from uh, Straw McCallum Solidarity from South Carolina. Appreciate it. So, yeah, let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about the um, the prison defender. <laughs> There's this guy, a private attorney. He's not even don't even work for the state. Bill Lunsford. Bill Lunsford is getting over seven million dollars a year, a year to defend our unconstitutional prison system from lawsuits by the Department of Justice and, and other various parties, I think. Um, and that is as much as Nick Saban makes, basically. Uh, he just got a raise to nine point something million, but before that he was making 7.7 million a year. Uh, and at least with Nick Saban, you can say like, okay, look, he is, I think mean, he's probably worth $7 million. I was, you know, by far uh, one of the greatest coaches in college yeah. football history. He brings in way more than $7 million in, in economic revenue to the state of Alabama, I think. And, and I think so, so, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a huge problem with him making that money. I think that the students also contribute to the amount of money that, that UA brings in. And I think they should get, uh, some of that and a lot more of that but but you know the idea that we are spending as much money as we do as a state on Nick Saban the best college football coach in history probably bringing millions of dollars into the state every year we're spending that same amount of money on some freak who is willing to defend like right because that's you have to be a freak to defend our prison system, right? There's just, you just can't do it. We just froze somebody to death a couple of months ago, right? This is not a defensible prison system. I've heard conservative legislators be on the radio talking about how our prison system is worse than third world countries and we really do need to address it and then they go down to Montgomery and they don't do anything about it. But the idea that you would be willing to defend Alabama's prison system is like, I mean, you're just, you're a freak, right? You're a freak. It's violent. It's cruel. It's dehumanizing. It's unconstitutional every day that it's an operation. And, you know, what are the taxpayers of Alabama getting for these millions of dollars? Uh, because, for me, as an Alabama citizen, as a taxpayer, I would want the state of Alabama to send a lawyer to go meet with the DOJ right. and say, how do we fix this? Yeah. And uh, let's start much, fixing it. Yeah, uh, this contract is for two years. The next, the, the, the upcoming contract is for two years, and it's for 20-something million dollars. And imagine, you know, $20 million 
is not going to fix our prison system, uh, but we could do something with $20 million. Right. You could hire quite a few social workers. You could hire quite a few more probation officers. You could hire quite a few more, you know, folks to work in in mental health in the prison system for that amount of money. Uh, And again, you could give people houses so they don't end up on the streets and then filling our jails, right? right. How many houses could $20 million build? How many people would that keep off the street if we created $20 million of housing? So, yeah, I I think that if I'm not mistaken here, Mr. Lunsford receives more in his payments from the state of Alabama than affordable housing does as a policy, as an initiative, like just more money given to Mr. Lunsford than is spent by the Alabama legislature, to, you know, devoted to affordable housing. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's wild. I really I recommend folks check out the article by Josh Moon that uh, was posted this week on the Alabama Political Reporter. Uh, I'm glad he caught that and put that out there uh, because it kind of I had not heard about it. I certainly hadn't heard about it. And, um, you know, that's something that I think is really interesting. You've got a guy making seven million dollars a year defending a system that is so obviously and egregiously bad. That there's no questions about, like no one's out here saying that ADOC is okay. No one's out here saying that Alabama's prisons are okay. I mean, it is universally agreed upon they are cruel and inhumane and overfilled. Um, like you said, that even conservative legislators are willing to acknowledge this. They won't do anything about it because that may actually require some criminal justice reform. It might require. Uh, funding programs that might help people, and I know helping people is a really you know big no no in Montgomery, but um, it's just yeah it's very egregious, and uh, you know I'm glad he interviewed Chris England for this, uh, who is an attorney as well as a legislator, because um, he asked what are we defending, and I think that's a good question. What is our seven plus million dollars a year going to defend? Um, because it looks like, from my angle, as an ordinary citizen who pays taxes, that my money is going to defend a cruel, un- inhumane system that is warehousing way too many people. More people inside the, the state of Alabama are locked up than almost any other place on Earth. Earth. Okay, all those bad countries I'm supposed to be scared of. I'm supposed to be grateful I live in America and not those really bad, terrible countries, right? But... Alabama is incarcerating more people inside our borders than those bad countries are. So Yeah, the United States mm. of America incarcerates more black folks today than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. And Alabama has a higher incarceration state than almost any other a higher incarceration rate than almost any other state in the country. And we're already, we cage more human beings than the Soviet Union did in the gulags. <laughs> and we're supposed to be, we're, we're told, we're always told that the Soviet Union is the big bad. That they are literally the worst regime to ever, you know, to, to, to ever, ever exist. Right? To ever exist. Uh, that's and, true. And, and, and we cage more people than the Soviet Union? Than Maoist China? Yeah, so then you have to ask, okay, so do you want me to believe that the people of Alabama are just that much more sick and degenerate right. and criminal? 
Yeah. Uh, and in which case, uh, is it really Sweet Home Alabama? Yeah. But, you know. And, and then that that's before we even, you know, this is just the, 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 the system that puts people in these prisons. We're not even talking about the conditions that these people live in in the prisons uh, and, and the lack of which rehabilitation. Are so disturbing and yeah. disgusting. Uh, I got a chance to hear a presentation from Alabama Appleseed earlier this spring. And if you're not following Alabama Appleseed, you should be because they're doing really, really important work in this area, uh, specifically with criminal justice reform and and dealing with the prison uh, situation here in Alabama. And it was just shocking to to hear some of the stories, to get some of the statistics from them. Uh, the state of Alabama's prisons are dire, mm. dire. I mean, right. disturbing. We it's, it's a national disgrace. It is a national disgrace, and so, you know, here's here's a gentleman making seven million dollars a year to yeah. defend that. Yeah, uh, it's and a shame. And and you know, some lawyers have this idea that oh, you know, you can defend anybody for any reason, and and we're not talking about a public defender defending a murderer, which is a you know, uh, a murderer's having defense is a constitutional right, and it's an important. And constitutional we believe in right. due process. But uh, as the, unionist, I mean, yeah. Uh, just, but the Alabama Department of Corrections is not a person; they do not have constitutional rights, and. And if we even say that we do need somebody to defend them, which maybe we do just for due process, I don't know, I'm really skeptical of that because I think the state could just say, yeah, you know what, you're right, we agree, because on the facts of the case, there's no way to argue that we're not violating the Constitution, and so we're just going to do the thing to repair our prison system. Uh, but so even we can if we, stop breaking the law. Yeah, what even if, if we didn't if? do that, though, we don't have to pay somebody $7 million a year to defend this, and this freak doesn't have to sell himself for seven million dollars a year to do this right this is somebody who could take who who is who who is experienced enough and and has the connections that he could take any case that he wanted and he is choosing with his limited time and resources to defend the alabama prison system a, a freak a freak this guy is yeah, I mean, just anyway. for the record, he moved from uh, the Maynard Cooper law firm to Butler Snow, so one yeah. of the, the most powerful firms to another one of the most powerful firms in the state of Alabama. So I'd be inclined to agree with you that he could probably pick his clients here sure. and uh, has chosen this one. But, you know, for $7 million a year, it's understandable mm -hmm. why he's doing it. Um, you know, I personally like to be able to sleep at night. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, some <laughs> people... You know, have different morals. Uh, this is the last thing we'll talk about here. And Infinite Content brought it up in the chat with a $5 super chat. Adam and Jacob, the Supreme Court actually did a good thing for Alabama in a gerrymandering case. Is Mercury and Super Retrograde this week? <laughs> and uh, yeah, it took us all by surprise. I it think. definitely took us by surprise. But, you know, I mean, on the merits of the case, the thing is, uh, the, the thing makes sense. You know, I mean, the non white population in the state of Alabama when uh, the 7th Congressional District was created was only 27% of the population. That's the whole non white white population, not even just the black population. Um, so the whole non-white population was 27%. And today, the non-white population is 37% in the state of Alabama. Uh, and so it is just the case that, uh, you know, 
minorities who are protected by the Voting Rights Act um, in states across the country, not just Alabama, uh, they do need a second congressional district at this point because their uh, their population has increased relative to the population of the state. And so they need a, a second con congressional district to have an opportunity to elect somebody uh, of their choosing. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously the facts of the case are, are, uh, in what, uh, you know, in, in favor of deciding against Alabama on the case, but that's not never stopped the Supreme court before, you know right. I mean? That's when the they, surprising thing. Yeah. When they overturned the pre-clearance stuff back in, I think 2014, it, is that when it happened? Uh, but whenever they overturned the pre-clearance, they did that after Congress, Reapproved <laughs> the Voting Rights Act, including the preclearance, by ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent. You know, and they just said, and you know, and and so they just said, oh, uh, well, Congress just approved this by ninety eight percent. But uh, I think I interpret that they're really just scared to do this, and actually they don't want to do this, and so I'm going to overrule uh, the ninety eight percent vote of the Congress of the United States and overturn. Uh, something that was just approved by them, uh, being the preclearance standard, uh, w which stated that for uh, for states and cities and municipalities, you know, I mean, states in the South aren't the only ones who had to have preclearance. There were some places in New York that had a history of discrimination. But if you were an area that had a history of discrimination and, and racism and white supremacy and stuff like this, um, then you had to get preclearance to change the voting rules, uh, which makes sense, and <laughs> and which Congress agreed. To before they um, uh, immediately in the years preceding the overturning of that by the Supreme Court, by the activist judiciary. Um, and so that's what a lot of people expected them to do this time. But uh, but they didn't. They abided by the law, which is kind of surprising, but uh, glad we'll take a win where we can get it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's going to have a ripple effect because it's my understanding that the same person who created Alabama's now illegal maps also created the electoral maps for places like Auburn mm -hmm. and I believe Tuscaloosa right. uh, and perhaps some other jurisdictions across the state. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if those end up in court, if they're not already. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this shakes up things politically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're talking I mean, my about maybe a is... second yeah. of the seven congressional districts being actually competitive. Right. Uh, you know, so that's that's interesting now. Uh, there's a lot more you could get in there in terms of what that would look like, but uh, you know, it's it's mm -hmm. it is nice that the Supreme Court actually did something that they were supposed to do for a change and listen to common sense. So yeah, um, yeah because I think, like you said, on the facts of the case were just so obvious, but that's never been a tell with this with this particular Supreme Court right. that is dominated by extremist right-wing judges yeah well i mean just look at the you know the glacier northwest opinion that they released right. uh the week before which clearly flies in the face of the of the national labor relations act and the constitution but uh you know they uh they <laughs> they just ignored uh they ignored uh, the you know what the what the law says yeah to give capital a win so yeah absolutely and last thing we'll say on alabama as we wrap up is that the legislature did finish so we can all breathe a sigh of relief that the legislature is no longer in session. Yeah, they no are more done. damage can be done. Yeah, they are um, done legislating all over us for this year. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, it, there was good, there was bad, there was ugly, a lot of bad and ugly. 
Uh, one good bit of news is that I've reported a lot on HB 209, which would have criminalized absentee voting assistance. That bill died, just like the divisive concepts bill. Also dead. So yeah. good news. Good news. Uh, so we'll go ahead and do our plugs and we'll wrap up before we go into overtime, which is, like I said earlier, the second half of the program where we are online only. We will continue streaming for another hour, hour and a half on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, and we will be free from the shackles of the FCC censors. So you definitely want to catch those conversations. Um and uh, Adam also has Shop Talk every Thursday morning, typically at 9.30 a.m., but this week it's going to be at 10.30 a.m. because of scheduling conflicts. So uh, definitely tune into that. You've got, a, you've got a good guest booked, and we'll talk about yeah, that yeah, as indeed. we head into overtime. Um, so make sure that you check that out. Uh, bookmark our website, tvlr.fm. And uh, donate to us, tvlr.fm slash donate. Uh, we could always use the money, and uh, we we try to be uh, conservative with the money that we get and responsible with it uh, because we do understand that, you know, uh, it is not easy for working people to give, uh, uh, you know, to to give from their meager earnings, right? No, um, so, so we really appreciate your time and resources. Uh, we're going to be heading into overtime. We're going to be speaking to Jesse Hagopi, about education and playing a pre-recorded interview of David Van Dusen, the president of the Vermont Labor Federation. Really looking forward to hearing that conversation uh, and responding to a couple of things that we got in the chat. So uh, stay tuned, folks. You're still listening to the Valley Labor Report. And for folks on the radio, we'll see you next week.